This is history for the future. What we can learn from the TRC with Pippa Green. Advocate Demisan Tsubeza has a long history of political activism. It could never have been the agency for the reconstruction of South African society. Always an independent, outspoken opponent of apartheid, he has retained these qualities in the new democracy, irrespective of how politically unpopular it may have made him. Born in the Transkei in 1949, he spent much of his younger life in the vortex of political turmoil. He was imprisoned while a student at Fort Hare in the 70s and managed to complete his law degree in jail. He was also detained during the 80s. He was appointed a commissioner of the TRC in 1995 and elected head of its investigative unit and its witness protection program. Why has this reconciliation been one-sided? Why has it been the victims who have been expected to have this generosity of spirit? It was by its nature a challenging job that could and did attract hostility. In 1997, a supposed eyewitness declared that his car had been the getaway car used after an armed attack on the Heidelberg Tavern, a bar in Cape Town which left four people dead. The armed wing of the PAC claimed responsibility for the 1993 attack, which happened when negotiations for democracy were well underway. And Sebeza was suspended from the TRC for a while. A few days later, however, the so-called eyewitness, a gardener, who had an unusually large amount of money in his bank account, admitted that he'd been put up to framing in Sebez and that he was a former security police informer. After his term as a commissioner, Sebeza returned to the legal profession and was the first African to take silk 10 years ago. He continues to take up causes of the more powerless in society. He was the advocate for the families of the miners who were shot dead by police at Marikana in 2013, appearing before the Farlem Commission on their behalf. I spoke to him in his chambers in Santon the day after the Farlem Commission had released its report and asked him what his task was as head of the investigative unit. You will know that one of the objectives was to you know, present as complete a picture as possible of all the violations of human rights that took place in the context of the political conflicts of the past. So, I mean, it was a tall order, especially when one takes into account that when we met on the day that the act was signed by the president, 16th of December, 1995, it was merely to say, when do we start in the new year? There were few resources, he says, when the TRC started work in January 1996. A PA for the chair, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, and for the vice-chair, Alex Burain, was about all. But other than that, there was nothing. We had no offices, we had no investigators. So the first two months, in fact, was uh, I was involved in putting together an investigative team. And yet we had already identified the 16th of April, I think 16th it was, uh, of 1996 to be the very first public hearing of uh, the Human Rights Committee. In other words, where we would hear victims 
In those three months, he and his team focused on gathering what he calls credible material on which to base the first human rights violations hearing in April 1996. So it was like hitting the road running. That first hearing dealt with, among other things, the abduction and murder of four civic leaders from Craddock, Matthew Goniwe, Sikelo Mtlauli, Fort Kalata and Sparrow Mkonto. That's the one at which uh, the Craddock four, from the perspective of those who were victims. And you will recall that that is the hearing where this young lady, I think she was Mshauli's daughter, said, yeah, I would like to forgive, but what am I going to forgive if I don't even know who was responsible for my father's disappearance and or death? Given the constraints of both time and investigative capacity, and Sabeza felt the hearings went well, it gave space to the victims to speak out. Especially because we establish a rule that whatever the victim said, notice having been given to perpetrators because it became a legal issue as to whether victims, even for victims' hearings, could say things about people without them having been heard first. What and was the decision then again? I think the decision, firstly, was that you know you can't. Uh, the victims cannot name people without them having been notified, because it was a violation of their right to privacy and, and, and all of that. And it's a decision that went, I think, right to the Supreme Court of Appeal, and to circumvent that, because I mean there was no way in which we could predict what people would say. We then were constrained to make sure that whatever we got told by the victims, we would record, take down statements, and if in the course of taking down statements it became clear that they were naming uh, certain people who, if they had not been forewarned, would hear about it only in the media. We then were constrained to conduct those who are named perpetrators and tell them that uh, on such and such a day there will be a hearing. Uh, it will be, we will be hearing so and so, so and so. They are going to make allegations against you and all your colleagues. And uh, if you want to make any submissions thereabouts, then do so. As a result, notorious security policeman Gideon Nivot brought an interdict against the family of Sapiwem Timkulu, a student leader who was poisoned in detention and then, after his release, was abducted and murdered. So they could not testify at that early hearing. Ironically, Nivot later applied for amnesty for the killing and was granted it, but he was refused amnesty for his role in the death of Steve Biko, the murder of three other Port Elizabeth leaders known as the Pepco Three, and for a car bombing in Motherwell which blew up four black security policemen. He died from cancer in 2005. For many of the families of victims, the Truth Commission was the first opportunity they had had to be listened to with respect, says Nsebeza. That was critical important. I still remember distinctly at the end of that week of hearings in East London. One of the people who had come was whose husband had disappeared, arrested, detained, and then was found hanged. 
That was in 1977. He was uh, Steve Biko's left-hand man. There was a whole drama about whether he had hanged himself or whether, in fact, the security police had hanged him. Because there was a so-called suicide note. And this, if you remember, there was protracted litigation in the 70s, in the 80s even, about this particular death in detention. And Nontle had gone to all the courts, including the then High Court in South Africa, the Appellate Division, as it was then called. And she had lost. So not only had she lost her husband, she lost the case, and she was melted with costs. I will never forget what she said on the day after she had given her testimony. She came across as suggesting that, you know, even if she never got to know the real truth about how her husband died, the one thing about the hearing in Miss London was that for the first time she was talking to a group of people whom she thought were believing her. He said, for the first time, I have been treated with respect. She says, I lost her husband, and then instead, I was myself detained. And in detention, those who were my detainers did not have the niceties that uh, you would think, or didn't treat me as though I was a widow, which I was. If anything, in subjecting me to third degree, because they wanted to know my association also with the Black Consciousness Movement and all of that. She received the harsh treatment, torture by the police. You know. She says, but what is more? They, they talk about my husband as though killing him. It didn't matter, because they said, you are going to go the same way as your husband did. He was reminded of Mrs. Mahapi about a year later when the Chilean-American playwright Ariel Dorfman visited the commission. Dorfman, whose play Death and the Maiden recounts a tale about a woman's encounter with her torturer in the wake of the Pinochet dictatorship, was so struck by a story Archbishop Tutu had told him that he had wanted to use it as a preamble to his next play. This woman, the chairman says, something very remarkable happened. When I was about to hear the story from this uh, woman, as a matter of course, I'll take a seat and then let's hear your story. And she kept on standing. And then he says, I said, no, please take a seat. And then she says, you know what? All the years I dealt with official dome, then trying to get to the bottom of this. In all those encounters, I've never been asked to take a seat. He says, never been asked to sit down. It was one of the accomplishments of the TRC, he says, to restore the civil and personal dignity that apartheid had taken away by allowing people to tell their stories. Mr. Mungapi was a fairly sophisticated African person. But you can imagine what it meant to ordinary people. And one of the most remarkable things about it that I still can recall. At the end of each session with victims, 
we would then ask them, what would you like the, the TRC to do for you? And almost all of them, the modesty of what they would want us to do was remarkable. Some of them would say, if I could just get a tombstone. Huh? <laughs> tombstone <laughs> of all things. I asked Nsebeza if it would have been possible to look at the broader violations of apartheid, economic restrictions, land deprivation and unequal education, to name a few. He says the time constraints were severe, but there were also the constraints of the legislation itself. The most unfortunate thing about, about the Act is the fact that some of what it promised the populace were aspirational things. There was no way that it was going to be the midwife <laughs> for the delivery of, of some of the promises that it made. I mean, some of the phrases were, were quite unfortunate, like reconstruction of South African society. That's what was in the preamble. I mean, you can't reconstruct. It could never have been the agency for the reconstruction of South African society. Much less could it have been itself a contributor to reconstruction. Because when once you talk reconstruction, you must talk about economic reconstruction. You must talk about looking at the structural causes of inequality, poverty deprivation, and you must, as of necessity, look at property relations. Midway through the TRC, he says, it became apparent how narrow the mandate was, in spite of the huge burden of work. A bit like the mandate of the Farlam Commission into the Marikana shootings, the report of which had just been released when we spoke. But it would have been a joke if the Commission had not tried to look at some of the institutions which, although not directly involved, contributed to what were identified in the Act as killings, abduction, torture, and severe ill-treatment. We used to call them cats, K-A-T-S. <laughs> killings, abductions, <laughs> torture, severe ill-treatment. But we said there are institutions which may not have been directly responsible, but there are ways in which they contributed to the perpetration of those values. The institutions included the legal profession, the media, big business and the defence force. There was a very strong view that we need to look at education, boundary education, the dire effects. And then we realised we would never be able to do anything. We need now to pick and choose areas of special investigation. And secondly, we decided that... Uh, Certain things will probably never be answered by the Commission, but have been dealt with legislatively elsewhere. This is also the case with forced removals, although many were keen for the TRC to investigate these. The people still remembered the way people were removed from uh, Sophia Town, District 6, and people were still feeling very, very aggrieved. And the question was quickly and clearly answered by us because I think some of us realize we cannot seek to investigate the causes of apartheid and what happened during apartheid 
in this period of time that we have and with the kind of resources that we had. 20 years on from the first TRC hearings and 17 years since the handover of the first volumes of the TRC report, how far does he think the country has moved towards reconciliation? There was a time that I thought we had moved towards the desired goal. And probably it was because of the charisma of Mandela. Because however much people may want to discard the personality issue in geopolitical affairs, there is a lot that personalities can do. Mandela was identified closely with an attempt at reconciliation. All the things that he did, he and Tutu going out into the street whilst this topic was still being debated, wearing springbok jerseys, almost defying the entire group of black people who felt the springbok in the way, the springbok jersey in the way in which it had been identified by previous apartheid order politicians. You know, this is a white man's sport. This is a white man's jersey. If you want to have your own rugby players, you can call them the leopards. Even those who felt very strongly muted their protests because of Mandela and Tutu, he says. But that spirit must be tempered with the realism that emerged in the TRC. One man who testified in Grahamstown said he understood where Mandela was coming from as he too had been in jail, although not for as long. But the difference between me and him is that since he left prison, his conditions of life have improved. So from that position, I think he is able to to preach reconciliation. But I am not in that position. I am a member of the organization that is calling for reconciliation. I understand why there is this call. I embrace it. It's, you know, it's the direction that we are. But, you know, I have a struggle with this notion of reconciliation. Because not only am I not employed, I am unemployable. And I'm unemployable because I spent time in jail, and whilst I was in jail, I lost the opportunities to advance. Now I come out, here I am, I'm not able to get employment, I'm, I don't have any qualifications. But what is more, the very people, the very people who were responsible for us being in jail, because we came with this uh, sunset clause, which gave them the option to become instant millionaires. They are now rich. They are going on with their lives. And I am wallowing in poverty with no chance. And reconciliation was soured when former torturers escaped all accountability. Some have even been exposed as doing work for the new government, such as Lieutenant Stephen Whitehead, one of the policemen who interrogated trade unionist Neil Agate, who died in detention. Newspaper reports have alleged he raked in millions from consulting work for SARS. I mean, really? eh? So something is wrong. Something is wrong. That's just one case. Why has this reconciliation been one-sided? Why has it been the victims who have been expected to have this generosity of spirit? This feeling of going down the wrong road has been compounded by the Falem Commission report on Marikana. And Sebeza represented the families of slain miners in the commission and has criticised the report. It is now becoming 
very manifest that we were not in the struggle for the same goals and objectives. Even though the rhetoric was there, especially the leftist rhetoric of selflessness and doing things for the country and whatever. When once it appeared, and I, I don't want to blame Codessa and whatever you, I mean it was a process, it delivered what it needed to be delivered. Some of the values that were ironed out during the deliberation process, 1990 to 1993, were reflected in the Constitution, you know, basic freedoms and all that. I think the one thing that is fundamental which we as a country failed to address was the reconciliation. You know, we we were very good and I think in a large measure we tried to get the nation to to understand the need for reconciliation between the perpetrators and the victims. And the uh, stories are legion about remarkable ways in which people reconciled, perpetrator and victim got reconciled. In a sense, that was the easier part of reconciliation, yet even this was troubled. When hostilities began, brutal things started to happen. People betrayed themselves, people got killed, people got murdered in the name. Extrajudicial killings became the order of the day. Even in the liberation camps, people began to torture each other, you know, and all of those things, which is why I think the ANC tried to stop us publishing this ANC report, because some of them were shocked. And Sebeza says many ANC leaders were shocked at what happened in some of the camps, such as Quattro in Angola. But when the ANC tried to suppress the TRC report in 1998, he says, it made him deeply uneasy and was a portender of things to come. The commission had taken the TRC legislation at face value. The greatest irony was that the president of the ANC sought to interdict the publication to his predecessor, the president of the ANC, who was now the president of, was still the president of the country. We are going to hand this thing to him on the 27th of October. He goes to court that very evening to interdict. It's bizarre, but it was indicative. Indicative of? It was indicative of things to come that in spite of the Freedom Charter, in spite of what was reflected in the Constitution as the values for which people had lost their lives. And these values were enacted in large measure through the TRC. Look, this is the past, but this is the future. In spite of that, there was an attempt by government by those who are in the levers of power, to muzzle the coming into the open. The ANC lost the case and the report was released, but Nsebeza says he was profoundly disillusioned. I had my misgivings right at that stage. And uh, my further misgivings were what the president said in Parliament on the 14th of April 2003, when we handed the remaining volumes. And um, he attacked South African citizens who had found it necessary to exploit a legal possibility of suing corporates in the United States 
for having aided and abetted the violation of their human rights. Nsebeza was one of the lawyers involved in the claim brought in the New York District Court against certain American corporations for human rights violations during apartheid. Then President Mbeki's attack was based on a falsehood, he says. The falsehood was that the TRC, we South Africans have got our way of dealing with these things. The TRC had dealt with all the problems. It was therefore, you know. And there was a suggestion that those who had now gone to foreign lands, <laughs> foreign jurisdictions. And in South Africa, he says, there's been a marked reluctance to prosecute those denied amnesty. Last year, the former head of the NPA, Vusi Pakoli, said in an affidavit that senior politicians had deliberately obstructed him from pursuing cases brought against old apartheid perpetrators. He was testifying in support of an application brought by the family of Nokotula Similani, a young activist who had been kidnapped and tortured to death. While some of her torturers were granted amnesty, it was refused to others. Her family asked for an inquest and prosecution. Only this year, the NPA announced it would charge four of her alleged torturers. But for years, says Nsebeza, ANC politicians blocked prosecutions, perhaps for fear that some of their top people could be embarrassed. Pigoli says he was told by Mabanda, who was minister of the hey, man, listen, if you prosecute these people, you know, she, she, she strongly suggested that there will be ramifications even for ANC people. He suspects deals were struck in spite of the Truth Commission. You see, what the TRC had promised the ordinary people was openness, transparency, and a revelation of the evils of the past. That's why Archbishop Desmond Tutu continues to say, the whole thing about reconciliation was premised on the revelation of the truth. Give people the truth. They may never be able to forget, but they can forgive when once they know. But, yeah, we have not been told the truth. Mrs. Nkadi Meng has now had to go to court in order to force our own democratic institution, the Ministry of Justice, to institute an inquest as to what happened to Nobutula Similar. I mean, wh- why must that be necessary? What are the consequences, I asked him, of not pursuing cases such as these? It's like a boy. There is no remedy for a boy. You must lance it. And the way to get rid of it is to face the truth, no matter how ugly it is, he says. There may well be people who are harboring some secrets who feel that they must go to the grave with those. Well, all of us have our own little secrets, you know. But this is a democracy. If it gets to a stage where it is critically important for society to move forward, that you must reveal the truth, even if it hurts you, fall on your sword or something like that, then that is what is noble in the kind of society that we are trying to build. Otherwise, we are going to be worse than the society from which we have emerged. Worse because they happen in an, in an era where we have committed ourselves to certain values. There are certain things that are just inconsistent with... I mean, the murder of, of Andres Tatani. Huh? He gets shot. He is unarmed. And there are about seven or eight or nine police people with batons, with rifles and what have you. 
They beat him because he's resisting. And then one of them shoots him to death. He dies in a minute right in front of our eyes. And shouldn't he have had a wake-up call there? The shooting of Andris Tatani, he says, was a prelude to Marikana. We allowed seven or eight people to go away with blue murder in Andres Tatani's case. And are we now surprised that it happened in Marikana? Because this culture of impunity and all dictatorship starts when a culture of impunity sets in. What then is his message to a country still trying to reclaim the idealism that imbued the TRC at its inception? The message to the people of South Africa is that it is the ordinary people, not those who controlled the levers of power that made it possible to change a structure in society that was in control and replace it with the one that the people wanted. At least in the new democracy, people can organize openly, he says. You know, these little movements, they call them, you know, service delivery protests. But those are movements. These are people who are jobless, who are landless. And and I say it is those movements, those civil society organizations, we as society must now claim back the space. Any government is in government because the people want it to be there. That was advocate Dumisa Sebeza interviewed in Johannesburg on the 1st of July 2015. I'm Pippa Green in Cape Town. Produced by Jean-Michel. Thanks to the Cape Town Youth Choir for the use of their musical performance of Senzanina. You've just listened to History for the Future, What We Can Learn from the TRC. Keep listening for more insights into the state of reconciliation in South Africa, then and now.